Hello. You are listening to the 542 and the Blue Podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history. Issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Your host Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. Today's Shade of Blue story. An Alamance County, North Carolina black widow. How she was caught and where she is today. This is Victoria your producer. Scott, you can start recording. 3, 2, 1. Thanks Victoria for starting us out again on 542 in the Blue. Last week our Shade of Blue story was about a grandmother on North Carolina's death row who was the first female to be executed in the United States after reestablishment of the death penalty. Today we're looking once more at a first or at least a record held in North Carolina again on the state's death row. This record is still ongoing. We're talking about a black widow. For those of you that don't know, black widow is generally referred to as an individual or a female that kills her mate, as the insect the black widow will do. Our black widow in today's discussion is 87-year-old Blanche Kaiser Taylor Moore. She was born in 1933. She is from Almanance County, North Carolina. And, of course, considering last week's show and this week's podcast, maybe our listeners should take heed and don't mess with a Carolina woman. Moore is awaiting execution in North Carolina for the 1986 murder of her boyfriend. She is also suspected in the death of a mother-in-law, her first husband, a boyfriend, and the attempted murder of her second husband in 1989. Blanche was born to a Flonny Honeycutt Kaiser and Parker Davis Kaiser, who was a mill worker and ordained Baptist minister and alleged gambler and, and womanizer. Now Blanche's father was a serious alcoholic and it is claimed by Blanche that he forced her into prostitution to help him pay for his gambling debts. Blanche was what kids, when I was growing up, referred to as a PK, or a preacher's kid. She was known to go from quoting Bible scripture to very sexually explicit conversations and topics at the drop of a hat. Blanche's father left his family and later, according to his death certificate, on file in North Carolina, died of a heart attack in 1968. Blanche had tried to reconcile with her father, but his health had taken a turn for the worse soon after she had started to do so. Now, Blanche lingered by his bedside and helped nurse him to the very end, onlookers believing that she was trying to make amends. Why she had to make amends for what he did, I don't know. Finally, Parker passed away, his cause of death listed in the record as a heart attack, triggered by chronic emphysema. The attending doctors overlooked some other symptoms that were there, violent stomach cramps, diarrhea, projectile vomiting, delirium, and a bright blue face, which all of these actually have 
and are known as symptoms of arsenic poisoning. But, nevertheless, nothing became of that. In 1952, Blanche had married James Taylor, a veteran and woodworker and furniture restorer. Furniture restoration and furniture work was popular in a very big business in that part of North Carolina. It's known as the furniture capital of the United States at one point. Now, the union between Mr. Taylor and Blanche resulted in two children, one born in 53 and the other born in 59. In 1954, in order to help make ends meet and support the family as well, Blanche began working at a chain grocery store as a cashier. In about five years, she had risen to the position of head cashier, close to what would be referenced to as an assistant manager today by, at the time, it was the highest paid job available to a female employee at the company. And that says a lot right there. Two years later, in 1968, a near-fatal heart attack and a belated conversion to Christianity persuaded Mr. James Taylor, the husband, to clean up his act. He became, in Blanche's words, the, quote, perfect husband and father, unquote. But the change did nothing to divert her ongoing love affair that she was having with Raymond, the manager of the store she worked at. James's mother, Ilsa, became unwell in 1970. Once again, Blanche rushed to her side and did the best to make the bedridden woman as comfortable as possible, but Elsa passed away, with doctors confirming the cause of death as being natural causes. Now, she was an old woman after all. However, once again, they hadn't noticed the fact that her eyes had turned a brilliant cobalt blue along with a large quantity of undigested arsenic that remained in her stomach that was actually found after the body had been disinterred later. James Taylor, her husband, died in 1971 as with her father three years earlier the cause of death was listed as a heart attack. Now we could start saying we're seeing a pattern here, but realistically only because we have some knowledge of the story's ending. The two similar deaths didn't raise any suspicion at the time. Now that her husband had passed away, her and her manager began to date publicly. About 10 years later, by 1985, the relationship between head cashier and manager of the store seemed to be going south. Apparently, Blanche had moved on up the food chain and was seeing a Kevin Denton, who was the district manager for the chain store. He was the regional manager for the Piedmont Triad area of North Carolina. Unfortunately, or financially fortunately, that relationship ended and she filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against this regional manager slash boyfriend and the store. The regional manager lost his job and the chain store settled the case out of court two years later for $275,000. 
that's a good chunk of change. Now, on a side note, in 85, Blanche reported what she called an unknown pervert prowler starting two fires that damaged her home. Just want to keep this in mind for later point of reference. Now, it is about this time that Our Lady met the Reverend Dwight Moore, the divorced pastor of the Carolina United Church of Christ in Almanance County. Now, he had just moved there from Virginia. Coincidentally, he left after a scandal at his former church where he was involved with a married woman, and apparently everybody found out about it. So he had to leave, and he came to North Carolina. Blanche apparently liked the idea of being with a minister, a strong religious man just like her father. Okay. Blanche introduced herself at the end of the Easter service, and soon they were meeting for meals on a casual basis. And Blanche started dropping hints of serious relationship between the two. Now, the preacher and his new lady friend started meeting for dinners and church functions. Blanche had to be very careful because her lawsuit against the store stated that she was now, due to the situation at the store, completely alienated and basically had turned against men altogether and had not been able to maintain any type of meaningful social contacts with the opposite sex. Basically, suddenly she didn't like guys no more. Interestingly enough, while dating the preacher, she asked him to procure some arsenic-based ant killer for her at one point. Uh, this came up in a court later. Now, sound familiar? Uh-huh. In 1986, Reed, our first boyfriend and manager, developed what was thought to be a case of shingles, and he was hospitalized and unfortunately passed away in October of that year. The death certificate and doctors indicated that the cause of death was Guillain-Barrem syndrome. Blanche was able to decline the hospital's request for an autopsy. She told the staff there at the hospital that Raymond's sons were reluctant for an autopsy. And the Reverend Dwight Moore escorted Blanche to the funeral. Blanche claimed a $30,000 estate from this former boyfriend, as well as untold contents from his safety deposit box and a safe that he had in his home, according to his family. And before everything was said and done with his family, Raymond's son gave her another $45,000 from his life insurance policy, believing that he would have wanted Blanche to be looked after. Wasn't that nice of the young man? And, of course, then we have the lawsuit uh, being settled about a year later. Blanche and Preacher Morgan began to see each other publicly shortly after that death and the lawsuit had been uh, settled. They actually ended up planning on getting married. Now, Blanche was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1987. The wedding date was pushed back one year. But the preacher developed a mysterious intestinal ailment that required two surgeries to correct. In 1989, to another year later, the couple were married and they had a honeymoon in New Jersey. After they returned back to North Carolina, 
new husband became very severely ill and collapsed after eating a chicken sandwich from a fast food chain that Blanche had given him. After several days of severe illness, uh, he ended up going to the hospital. The illness got worse, and he had to be transferred from a local hospital to North Carolina Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem. Still not getting better, they ended up admitting him to the North Carolina Memorial Hospital in Chapel Hill, a teaching college. Continuing to get worse, he was facing organ failure and death. Now, Blanche had told doctors he had been working with herbicides in the yard. The pastor's doctors, after having a discussion with the hospital toxicologist, ordered a very detailed toxicology screen to check for the herbicide poisoning, taking the new wife's statement and story at face value. The results came back. And this is another one of those uh, records North Carolina has going for us that we probably don't really necessarily want to be connected to. But when the results came back, it showed Reverend Moore had 20 times the lethal dose of arsenic in his system that would have killed anybody else. 20 times the amount that would kill. This ended up being another record for North Carolina, like I said. This was the most arsenic found in a living patient in that particular hospital's history at the time. Moore had a particularly robust constitution, apparently, and he ended up surviving it. Once they located what it was, they got his system somewhat cleaned out. However, he never really fully regained full sensation in his hands and feet. And in a 2010 television interview that you can actually pull up and watch on YouTube, Moore said he still suffered from tremors in his hands and the weaknesses in his legs due to the poisoning. Of course, seeing the test results, the hospital knew something was up and they contacted local law enforcement. And the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, or the SBI, got involved. The two law enforcement agencies opened up an investigation and began their interviewing. Now, interviewed by police from his hospital bed, the preacher happened to mention in passing that a former boyfriend of his new wife had died from Guillain-Barre syndrome. The investigators researched and found out the symptoms were very similar to arsenic poisoning. Investigators also discovered that Blanche had attempted to change the good preacher's pension in order to make herself the principal beneficiary. Some of you may be familiar with Ian Fleming and his writings, of course, the James Bond author. Ian Fleming wrote in his novel, Goldfinger, Once is absence, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. So apparently this came across the same way to the investigators. The SBI and local investigators began further digging. Literally. They exhumed his, her first husband, James Taylor. They exhumed her lover, Raymond Reed. And they even went back and checked her father, Parker Kaiser, and ordered him to be 
disinterned for investigation and further detailed chemical autopsy. Follow-up autopsies ended up showing elevated levels of arsenic in all three bodies. The level found in Reed and Taylor were determined to be fatal, reclassifying their deaths as the result of arsenic poisoning. It also emerged that doctors at Baptist Hospital, where Reed was admitted in 1986, had ordered a toxicology screen for him at the time. However, on the day of the test came back, the resident responsible for caring for Reed had rotated to another hospital. The new resident assigned to the patient, boyfriend Reed, never passed the results up his chain of command. Those results had shown an extremely high level of arsenic in the boyfriend system. And this showed up and was still in the medical records when the law enforcement officers and investigators went through it. Once you get this information, you of course are going to start doing interviews. And Blanche, of course, was interviewed. She said both Moore and Reed had been depressed and suggested they had been taking arsenic themselves, possibly in a suicide attempt. But our investigators didn't buy it. Investigation also showed that she had gone back to sleeping with Reed the same time she was dating her new preacher boyfriend before they got married. This also brought up some questions of her involvement with Reed's illness and death. Another issue that showed up was after Reed's death had his hair cut in an apparent attempt to prevent hair samples being obtained by anyone in a follow-up. And most of you that read mystery novels and watch Murder, She Wrote know that the Arsenic stays in the hair. And some hair samples from Napoleon, as a matter of fact, they found, if I'm not mistaken, some arsenic as well, thinking that the Napoleon Emperor or Napoleon had been poisoned. Now, on July 18, 1899, after all this information was presented to the judges and a grand jury, Blanche was charged with first-degree murder and the deaths of Reed and Taylor, boyfriend and husband. She was also charged with assault with a deadly weapon for the poisoning of new husband, the Reverend Moore. Prosecutors later dropped the charges in the case of Tyler and Moore after she was sentenced to death for boyfriend Reed's murder. The trial opened in Winston-Salem in 1990, about the week before Halloween. During the court case, she actually testified and denied giving Reed any food. She said she neither fed Reed food from her home while he was sick, nor gave arsenic-tainted food to any of the other men she is accused of poisoning over a 23-year period. Her statement was, I know arsenic was found in those people, but it's not because I put it there because... I did not do it. Now, unfortunately for Blanche, the state was able to produce 53 witnesses who all could testify and did testify about her daily trips to the hospital 
in all cases with food and feeding boyfriend, husband, and new preacher. It appeared the state had an easier time than expected in making such a complex case because Reed's ex-wife, who he had left after hanging out with uh, Blanche, his ex-wife and sons ended up suing Baptist Hospital for malpractice. They were able to get the normal statute of limitations for wrongful death thrown out because they were able to prove where their attorneys were that Blanche, as executor of Reed's estate, should have been the person to find out about the toxicology screen. But she didn't. The Reed family argued that Blanche's fraudulently prevented them from finding out the results of the test or any information about his condition. The U.S. courts had held that statutes of limitations do not apply in civil cases when the defendant engages in fraudulent concealment or do so for criminal activity or gain. The Forsyth County District Attorney's Office, with the assistance of Reed's family lawyers, most of the evidence against Blanche ended up being gathered by these attorneys in their civil action, and the district attorney was able to backdoor all that information into court as evidence. The courts in the past, as anyone who watches TV, have interpreted the Fifth Amendment protection against self-incrimination very broadly for criminal cases. Such protection does not apply in civil cases. Now, civil law allows much more latitude for searches and subpoena. And the DA, like I said, sort of backdoored the evidence collection into his trial and his presentation. Now, Blanche ended up spending more than six hours on the stand in front of about 200 and 50 people in the Forsyth County Superior Court. It's documented that she spoke slowly and deliberately, taking time to gather her thoughts and her emotions. She paused occasionally to fight back tears, mostly when speaking of Reed, whom she said she loved very much. They would have married had he lived, she said. Blanche had also refuted testimony by witnesses who said that she did not appear to be grieving over Reed's death that she was laughing and talking at the funeral home. She said she didn't recall doing that and stated, I was hurt. I was hurt very badly when Raymond died. Blanche said on the stand that she is a very private person who keeps her grief to herself. In fact, she told the court under direct questioning by her attorney that in her life she had not been motivated by money but by a love for her church and her family. I've just tried to be there for others and to help whenever I could, she said. And I've always been a giving person. Well, the question is, what was she giving them? And I think we have a good idea. Blanche would not say how those who had testified against her during her murder trial had lied, but she said that her memory of certain events differed from theirs. Well, as you probably figured, Blanche was convicted in November of that year, November 14th. 
November 17th, the jury recommended the death penalty. That didn't take long. And on January 18th, the next year, 1991, the judge agreed, concurred with the jury, and is sentenced more to die by lethal injection. That was in 1991. Now, of course, there are mandatory appeals, but at this time, Blanche is in the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women as prisoner number 288088. She has written some music while she's been locked up and spends time writing poetry from what the newspapers say. Cancer in prison required more to undergo both chemotherapy and radiation therapy at several times. Now, because of the automatic appeals process, Blanche has been able to avoid the execution for over 28 years, and she maintains her innocence to this day. As always, there tends to be a side note in these types of Shade of Blue stories, and Blanche's story is no different. One of Blanche's attorneys, a David Tammer, was indicted for misappropriation of his client's funds, including Blanche's, and was convicted of embezzlement. And apparently he also had a history of mental problems and some disassociation activities that ended up bringing some media attention to him. But all of that, Blanche's uh, conviction still upheld. In 2010, 10 years ago, Moore and the 11 other death row inmates from Forsyth County filed a motion to convert their sentences to life imprisonment on the basis of the state's Racial Justice Act. The argument was the racial composition of the juries. Now, Blanche was a white woman, but according to her motions, the makeup of the jury was inappropriate for a fair trial. She didn't get very far on that and it was turned over. Now some of the other individuals that were in that lawsuit actually had new trials and had some sentences commuting, but Blanche did not. Now let's go back to her husband slash attempted murder victim, Dwight Moore, the Reverend. He told Winston-Salem news media sources once he has no objections to his wife seeking to have her death sentence overturned, and he's kind of up in the air about whether she did it or not. Now, in 1993, author Jim Schultz wrote a book about the murders entitled Preacher's Girl, and you can find that on Amazon and several used bookstores. He wrote that he had found evidence that seemed to indicate that Blanche had set up Denton in the sexual harassment lawsuit, you figure, and may have intentionally set the two fires that she had ended up making some money off of insurance-wise. I'm sure you've thought that as well after a while listening to this story. Also, there was a made-for-TV movie that came out called Black Widow, and Elizabeth Montgomery played Blanche in this made-for-television movie. The situation popped up again in the media in 2015. The entertainment website called, appropriately, Stupid, S-T-U-P-P-I-D, published an article reporting that a woman on death row in North Carolina had requested a live kitten for her last meal. 
The article said basically, Serial husband killer and North Carolina death row inmate Blanche Taylor Moore requested this weekend that her last meal be a kitten, a live kitten. The North Carolina Prison Administration is required to accept all last meal demands of any kind. Thus, they will obtain a kitten from a local animal shelter or pet shop. And as you can guess, this joke uh, or nonsense story, once it hit the internet, morphed into a life of its own. The North Carolina prison system began receiving a major attention and complaints from individuals and animal rights activists and kitten lovers everywhere. Now, although the article was shared widely across social media, of course, there was no truth to it. And, of course, no truth to the claim at all that a North Carolina woman will be eating a live kitten for her last meal because the state is obligated to comply with her request. Well, for one thing, there was no request. For the other, the practice of allowing a condemned prisoner to choose his or her final meal is merely a courtesy that has traditionally been extended to those about to be executed for the crimes. But no state in the Union mandates that these requests must be fulfilled, and there's been no Supreme Court documentation on that either, which some indications you will on the Internet will show, meaning no matter how unusual, impractical, or costly they may be, it's just not going to happen unless the state wants it to. As a matter of fact, the state of te Texas ended the provision of last meal requests to inmates back in 2011 because of the issue creating problems. Now this is our shade of blue for today. As one article described her, she was the Black Widow from Central Casting. Blanche Southern and Demure with a big 80's hair style and a string of pearls. A preacher's daughter and a preacher's wife. A grandmother even secretly slipping arsenic into food like her homemade banana pudding and sweet tea, hoping to induce slow, painful death on those closest to her. And that's our shade of blue for this week. So, Victoria, you can go ahead and close us out. And, yeah, I'll take some of that banana pudding and sweet tea. Uh, you made it? Cool. Remember, in the coming weeks, try to do something nice for somebody this coming week. It'll make you feel good and make another person feel good. And remember, wash your hands as much as possible. Again, Victoria, go ahead and close us out. You have been listening to the 542 and the Blue Podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. There you can find a link to the podcast website and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can also be reached through the message portal on the contact page. This is Victoria for 542 and the Blue. Thank you for listening.